the proof, I think, for long-term success will be in kind of what happens with the price of, of Bitcoin. It's kind of been bumping you know, sideways to down for the last couple quarters. And if it stays that way or if it goes down you know, post-having for whatever reason, it's going to put a lot of business models under stress and also depress interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. My name is Ahmed Al-Balaghi. I'm recording from sunny London, and it's a shame we can't be outside enjoying the weather. And for our second remote recording as part of this lockdown, I have Mike Dudis, who is the CEO and founder of The Block, which is one of the most rapidly growing research and media brands in the crypto and digital asset space. Me and Mike discuss how COVID-19 is affecting tech companies, the impact it will have on crypto, what attributes a wartime CEO should have during these times. All this and more is discussed on today's episode. Also, I'd really like to thank those who have been supporting the show. And remember, you could support us in any way possible. You can subscribe, rate and review the show, share the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. And now on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Encrypted. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Balaghi. And today with me, I have a special guest, Mike Dudis from The Block. Say hello. Hey there. How are you doing? Doing quite well. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. How is quarantine? Where are you in the world? Yeah, so I am quarantined in Connecticut. I'm originally from Connecticut, grew up here, mm -hmm. and moved back in with my parents at 40 and brought my two kids and wife with me. So we've been here going on three and a half weeks now as of early April. I wow. got out of the city yeah, pretty yeah. early, yeah. So yeah, I probably expect to be here another month, but fortunately, you know, safe and in good spirits and have enough space to you know, continue to run the business remotely and, and stay sane, which we would not have had in New York City and Manhattan apartment. I can imagine that. And how, how is it right now, the situation in New York? I mean, that's the place that's been shown on the news quite a lot recently. Indeed. So for our team specifically, we're fortunate, again, that a number of folks have, you know, are from the greater area and have been able to either stay with family, friends or others. And, you know, for the folks who have stayed behind, again, we've been fortunate as a team that nobody to date as of early April has, you know, is showing any severe case of coronavirus or has, you know, tested positive. So in good spirits and able to do our jobs. So we're extremely grateful for that, for our health. And again, because we're a virtual business, the remote nature of what we do, publishing information in large part virtually, we obviously have events and in-person things, but the bulk of our operations being online, you know, it's allowed us, and frankly, as a team to, to bond and, and spend time in our processes together, whether it be Slack or Zoom or Hangouts, or you name the forum, yeah. continuing to work together. It's nice to have folks kind of around the world. We're in five or six different time zones to talk to on a daily basis. It's certainly been helpful. Yeah. So I guess you're already assumed to that remote style of work. So before we get into that, can you quickly give an introduction to yourself, you are and what you do? Indeed. So today, I'm CEO of The Block. We are the first and final word in digital assets. Yeah, that's our tagline. And by that, we mean we aim to be the first place that somebody turns if they have information about cryptocurrencies, the blockchain technology, central bank digital currency, etc. First, because it's critically important information, they trust our brand, but also the final word. So first and final word, 
Meaning, if you want the authoritative take, you know, research-driven, whether it's journalism or our research product, you trust that if we've covered a story, a topic, a theme in depth, that information's accurate, robust, and that you don't need to get 10 other opinions. And we feel, and the reason that we started the block was that the pace of change mixed with the quality of mainstream media coverage and the explosion of kind of information sources on the web, whether it be on social media, Reddit, Twitter, Telegram, and you know, deeply vested interests being that digital assets and cryptocurrencies are financial markets, we were just seeing so much wrong information out there and misleading information that we created the block to, one, to inform folks, and two, to really help combat and you know misinformation and drive and really drive the market forward by legitimizing it and so you know, we spent a lot of time at the block our customers were not free um, and we do have you know, a free news product but we also have a premium research product so we engage very deeply with institutions both crypto native institutions and traditional institutions who are interested in this market and it's our primary business model so yeah yeah I run that business I'm not on the editorial team per se but you know I work on growing the company the brand the sales and helping us to find our, our space in this global crazy rapidly moving ecosystem and the 10 years preceding this I had worked in traditional financial technology markets. So I'd spent time at Google Wallet launching that. It's now called Google Pay. I spent time at Venmo and Braintree and business development, short time at PayPal after they acquired Venmo, and then started a company, a venture capital backed company that's now almost 150 people based in New York City in the mobile commerce space. So I've spent a lot of time in traditional fintech and financial markets. And Mm. it was just had always been interested in Bitcoin and crypto had purchased Bitcoin when I was at Braintree uh, in 2013. We had kind of worked with Coinbase on potentially accepting payments for our customers, which included Uber and Airbnb. Started to work on that. You know, that didn't end up happening due to the PayPal acquisition. But anyway, that's where the interest came and finally came around to jumping into the market full-time in 2018. Awesome. So let's back up a bit. And I was interested because given the current situation with this deadly virus and, you know, the, the traditional industries that you've been working with, I'm interested to sort of just hear how has, you know, if you've heard any stories from Google, folks at Venmo about how their line of business has actually been impacted, affected by Corona? Because they're mostly digital, right? And I have a few assumptions. I'd assume Venmo should be doing better than Google at some points, but love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've heard anecdotes versus looking at hard numbers, obviously. So what I am saying is is based on what other folks are telling me. What I do know is I've worked in companies that touch a number of different markets. So let's just start with the last one, Button. Button is a mobile commerce or mobile affiliate platform. So working with the biggest retailers and e-commerce companies in the world, from Uber to Walmart to Amazon to Booking.com to Mm. Airbnb and others, to help them acquire customers and drive transactions. And so talking to that team, it's, it's clear that those companies' businesses are affected. There have been news stories about Walmart and Amazon you know, pulling back on their 
advertising spend across the board from performance marketing to brand marketing. And, and so, yeah, I can certainly say that that's true based on the folks that I've spoken with. So that obviously then goes across so much of the companies that I've worked on and worked at across their business models, right? So yeah. if Walmart and Amazon and Uber and Airbnb are seeing declining revenue, then Braintree is going to see declining processing volumes. And then if you go even further, you know, Google, I know for a fact that they've implemented at least a short-term hiring freeze. And obviously, they're extremely resilient. You can look at their performance. I actually joined Google right in the sort of midst of, in 2009, so in the midst of the financial crisis, and they weren't hiring very much. They've, again, frozen hiring. I don't have insight into the direct impact on the business, but you have to imagine that, again, based on what I've been reading, as well as what folks have told me and the fact that they're not hiring, that they're seeing at least a temporary hit to marketing spend, which you know, drives virtually all their revenue. And then you have Venmo and your peer-to-peer payments. Look, the, the business model for, for Venmo or for Cash App and others isn't you know how many dollars are sent from one person to another. For Venmo, it's really you're trying to be a a payment button. So people are buying a Venmo less fewer things online, then obviously, you know, their revenue is going to be down. So yeah, it's it's affecting all financial technology companies. And then if you just look at the pure financial companies, the banks, you know, big banks, yeah, they have a ton of cash, but they're not really lending it and they don't know what the risk models look like. So their stocks are getting creamed. So across the board, you know, tech and and you know the tech ecosystem. You know, there's small, small pockets of companies like Zoom, for example, that are doing unusually well yeah. for specific reasons. But the vast majority of companies in the technology industry and in the financial services industries are going to see you know, significant near-term shocks to their businesses. Yeah. And they're already seeing that. You're hearing reports, you know, whether it's ad-supported businesses, whether it's software as a service, and you're selling into companies that are cutting budgets, or lower payment processing and transaction um, because consumer spending fell off a cliff globally, frankly, beginning in Q1 in China and moving across towards the US and Europe you know, later in the quarter and into this quarter. So it's going to be outside of a small pocket of companies within yeah. the technology and financial industries, that the industries that I've worked in, it's going to be a really significant short-term hit to their businesses and, and it'll likely take a lot of time for spending to ramp back up both corporate and household spending and get those businesses back to normal, even with stimulus. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that. I mean, you know, even just going to retail, just a recent example here in the UK, actually, Debenhams, which is a very big high street store. So they sell all kinds of brands, a huge, huge outlet. And they've just filed for administration, I think, a day or two ago. And this is, you know, Debenhams is a household name in the UK. And yeah, it's it's just crazy how, you know, this thing is happening. I think it's also, you know, I don't know if, it, if this is a good thing to say, but it is, you know, just evolution and survival of the fittest. I mean, if you are sort of a really good store to begin with, without much debts, you know, in the beginning, but it needed sort of one, you know, big shock to make you go bust. You know, those businesses who are resilient during this time meant that they were financially good beforehand. So it could be sort of a good thing, at least in the business realm, to bring a new ready to be yeah. incumbents. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I wouldn't, it's hard to say it's good, but what you're saying is true and you could see it in the U.S. as well, right? With Macy's, you know, which is clearly an old sort of previous generation company that's going up to furlough, you know, over a hundred thousand people and who knows how they come out of it. So it's definitely not good. Really? But wow. Hopefully that's those, good, yeah, yeah, hopefully those folks can find opportunities in companies that have more long-term sustainable business models on the other side of this. But in the short term, my goodness, it's scary. 
Yeah. All right. So to to talk about a topic that hasn't, I think, in my opinion, hasn't been affected too much by this virus is well, the crypto industry, what we're working in. What are your thoughts on what COVID-19 means for, for crypto? So it's too early, obviously, to say. Mm-hmm. Here's why. So so one you know, major, major event in, in our sort of ecosystem is coming up, the Bitcoin halving, that really drives a lot of the economics in the industry and will have downstream effects. So, you know, once you reduce the block reward, you know, due to the halving, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the economics of miners. And so many companies are sort of dependent on mining affiliated with it. And in addition, there's going to be a reduction in kind of new issuance and supply. So, you know, we'll see how that impacts folks' business models. But to date, that's not happening until next month. To date, Everything that we're hearing from exchanges who represent one of the most significant swaths of the ecosystem is that they're seeing increased. We could see the increased volume in March and our team as of early April just came out with a free report on our site looking back at March numbers Mm -hmm. and exchange volumes were up. They're resilient. We've surveyed tons of exchanges and close to a dozen of them have said we're getting we're seeing new customers. Yeah. You know, I've looked at Google Trends and I'm not sort of seeing that increase in searches for Bitcoin and Google Trends, but the numbers are saying that the people are there. And so that's great for our industry. The proof, I think, for long term success will be in kind of what happens with the price of of Bitcoin. I think it's always going to be the leader in this ecosystem. It's kind of been bumping sideways to down for the last couple quarters. Mm -hmm. And if it stays that way, or if it goes down, you know, post having for whatever reason, it's going to put a lot of business models under stress and and also depress interest. So, and also this is the time when that narrative of Bitcoin as a store of value and safe haven would be incredibly useful. <laughs> you know, if there were ever yeah. a time when when we could prove that it, it truly is digital gold, which we've been saying it is for the past couple of years, now's the time. And and I don't mean today, but I mean, you know, over the next couple of quarters. So, again, too early to make broad-based general conclusions about how resilient we are. So far, it seems like the signals are you know, exchanges as businesses are doing well. Certainly, you know, media and information businesses like ours, you know, we had a record mm. revenue month in March. You know, we're in early, well, I mean, we're two years old at this point. And so we're, we're doing significant revenue figures. We looked at the traffic of our competitors and other companies in the space, and, and they were up in March. So the attention is there. Yeah. And it's just a matter of where does price go from here? And mm. is this the moment when you know, the market really expands? If not, you know, if you don't see movement in the next quarter, I think it will be pretty concerning because businesses are, the businesses are, by the way, cutting back, right? You know, they're just not yeah. out there. They're not out there parading their layoffs. It's like in traditional tech, it's it's a badge of honor to say, hey, we're tightening all our belts. We laid off, you know, 20% of our staff and, you know, all these big unicorns that were crazily overvalued. We know those layoffs are happening at specific certain crypto companies. And you know, I can't say it until we ultimately report it, but people are being much more quiet about it. It is impacting those sort of in-between companies, the tweeners who you know, maybe yeah. have a lot of venture capital funding, haven't you know, found that product market fit and are seeing some of their enterprise customers become a little more risk averse right now. No, I totally get that. I mean, even for, for us, so the startup I'm running by Economy and we're way more of a pure SaaS model for, for the crypto industry. 
So it's plug and play scalable relay infrastructure. So we're helping developers pay gas fees on behalf of end users. So our target segment is like gaming, for example. So if you're a gamer wanting to look into the space or play a game that's on the blockchain, you don't want to muddle around with, you know, Ethereum and all of that. You, you want to ensure that the UX is actually very smooth. So we provide yep. that sort of stack to the developer so that they could easily plug and play within a day or so. And what we've seen is just an increase in sort of just developers, like actually just reaching out. We're doing this hackathon, like our, our team, like we're based between London and India. We're doing this hackathon in India, sort of the, in, in crypto, sort of one of the largest ones, there are around 4,000 hackers that have registered to that. So more people are on their computers or laptops, not minding, you know, hacking away at things, especially at this point. And what's also interesting, we're getting a few inbound requests to be, you know, people looking for jobs or internships and where they used to work before were companies in this space that had a application a mainstream application whether it's a recruitment or like various types in the blockchain industry we saw that they they did some layoffs and we've been sort of getting inbound requests for intern potential interns or or other hires and so it's interesting because like you said you know there are some winners and some losers in this space yeah and i was wondering you know as a ceo who's moving in this space we're seeing a lot of you know adversity and what does it mean to be a leader during these times what are the attributes needed there's this talk between peacetime versus wartime ceo and so we're going through this accelerator now right and in london so now it's like a remote accelerator and one of the analysts in the accelerator is that, Ahmed, your job for the next 18 months is to survive. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and I thought, interesting. Like, that's a very, very interesting, like, take. So I don't know what you, what you think about this. So that's obviously, unquestionably, that's sound advice. I mean, I think it's always, <laughs> it's always the job of a startup CEO to survive in good times or in bad, from a macroeconomic perspective, it's always still going to be extremely difficult, even if the market's growing like gangbusters, you know, to grow a startup, you know, venture-backed startup in any space. And obviously, yes, it does become more difficult when there are external headwinds. So I don't think the job changes too much. I think it just, in terms of the core responsibilities, it just makes specific aspects of it more important. So mm. one would be, as you mentioned, survive. So that means ensure that you have as much cash as possible and necessary to allow your company to operate if conditions worsen for more than you might actually optimistically project. So that could be raising additional cash. That could mean any number of things to, to secure cash to communicate. So understand that the job of the CEO is always to communicate to employees, to investors, and to the external market, how your business is doing, what you stand for, what your value proposition is. In these intense times of uncertainty for a number of people, and particularly working remotely, really critical to hear from your leadership, not only the CEO, but your leadership, your, your manager, mm. you know, what the company's plans are, how the company is doing. So you know, I immediately sent an investor note, but shared it with the entire team. I share all of our notes with the entire team and just talked about our cash position, how we'd been doing from a revenue and burn perspective over the past few months and that those things were trending positively. Obviously, that there's uncertainty over the coming months and quarters, but 
that to date we haven't seen adverse impacts. So communicating all of that and then you know really being there for the team. I think another thing is, and again, it depends on the business, but really take account of what's absolutely necessarily critical. And maybe this is a part of the wartime thing, but we certainly have focused inward and said, you know, our thoughts are so expansive and, and growth oriented and risky moving forward from a product perspective. Hey, what are the things that we can really focus on to drive revenue today and then really optimize versus that might drive revenue in 12 months or 24 months? So we've changed a few things around in our product roadmap, just you know, really basic stuff that we would do anyway, but just front loading it to now, which is making our SEO more robust, making our landing pages and sign up flows and all of those things more robust. And then a number of other tactical things that could drive revenue today versus yeah. you know, 12 or 18 months from now. Cool. No, sounds, sounds like great advice. I, I saw a tweet that you tweeted, I think it was yesterday. Sadly, as I've become a primarily crypto tweeter over the past mm. two years, most of my mainstream tech friends and followers over a decade have unfollowed or muted me. My question is, is that because you're straight up annoying or people just don't care? And you know, if, it's, <laughs> yeah. if it's the latter, then how can we change that? So I think it's a mixture of, I think it's a mixture of both. So <laughs> okay. I, I have a frequency and pace of communication publicly using Twitter that like I have a really engaged following, right? But, you know, I'm not going to be, I don't have a million people following me because I'm constantly using it as a place to converse and, and share new ideas, mm-hmm. say some smart things, lots of dumb things. Anyway, you have to really be interested and engaged in the topic though, I think, to follow me actively. So I you know, can just tell by the engagement with folks, even some of whom, you know, could be investors or close to me who, who I'm absolutely certain have, have muted me because, you know, they're engagement just dropped to zero for for a long period of time. And so I think it's reflective to your second question. Yes, a lack of specific interest in still most people in the mainstream population in digital assets, right? In Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Mm. Part of it, I think, has to do with it hasn't really hit the mainstream yet. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, everybody's aware of it, but it hasn't hit the mainstream in terms of people ultimately using it. I mean, there's only so much that the average person wants to hear about it who's not deep within the industry. I also think there's behavior, and certainly I've fallen into the trap and, and been guilty of exhibiting it myself you know, more than I'd like to, which is just the pettiness and, and sort of infighting and stupidity that happens a lot on you know, crypto Twitter. And you know that has spillover effect and, and people outside of the ecosystem see it and they're like, what the heck's going on here? So they just sort of tune it out. So I, I think I, I've done my best to limit that, but still fighting it. And there's always another troll that pops up you know, here and there, mm-hmm. but you just, I, I myself have, have tried to aggressively use, you know, mute and block to keep sane and, and communicate really with the folks who, who are fair and interested in learning and interested in debating and discussing in an earnest and at least positive or non-trolly manner. Yeah, no, Twitter is great for that. I do agree. I mean, you know, different partners, different potential clients, investors, Twitter is definitely a strategy for, for companies in the space. So I want to talk a bit about facts and numbers, particularly on your crypto site, the block. And I'm just interested, actually, what are people mostly engaged with when it comes to content? Is it scandals? Is it research? Is it prices? Is it sort of the what is blockchain you know, piece that every site has to have? Like, what is the thing that really brings people back to your website? Yeah, so it's a good question in general. It's not a great one 
with respect to us in the sense that, you know, a lot of our content is intentionally scarce in the sense that, you know, we charge for it, right? We, we put it behind a paywall that's part of a comprehensive product called the Block Research. So mm-hmm. in terms of just pure engagement now, so let's just talk about pure engagement. You know, the pieces that get the most engagement are the ones that we avoid. So we'll never be anywhere close to the most trafficked site in this space because we simply refuse to write a lame price piece. So if you look across any of our other competitor sites today, you're going to see a piece about Bitcoin mooning over $7,000 and people click the hell out of those. We just don't write them, you know, unless it's an insane or really, really meaningful move. And there's some learnings to be had from it. We'll write the very occasional price piece. Those ones do the best traffic by far. Okay. Next would be kind of your, your breaking news. And and so those ones are Mm -hmm. ones where we tend to do really well. It's funny that you ask today, we have a piece that's doing incredibly well on the halving. So what happened in the previous halving? So that's one where it's kind of about price in the sense that we're saying, here's how Bitcoin behaved post the previous halvings and not really making a prediction about yeah. this current one, but that's doing, you know, that's our best piece so far that I've seen in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just to show you that, yeah, like things about price really drive the most interest and then brand name companies. So brand name companies with breaking news and product announcements. The last one is obviously sort of lawsuits or controversy or arrests. <laughs> and there's there's a whole lot of that in this space. Those Those draw a ton of attention. The ones that don't draw attention but draw credibility is kind of where we really pride ourselves. And that's a lot. That's the work our research team does. Larry Cermak, our our head of research, tweeted out a really long thread on March performance, as I mentioned earlier. That'll do really well. And it's it's a lot deeper than what we traditionally will share as just basic news and journalism. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I could understand that. I mean, you definitely don't want just price information because that, that's its own separate audience and target market, I assume. Yeah, it's a great one. And it's just not where we operate. So you almost have to make a decision. You do have to make a decision. Are you going to be a retail you know, financial information property yeah. and brand? Or are you going to be an institutional one? And in just about any market that's ever existed in financial markets, serving institutions has been the lucrative place to be. You know, you look at Bloomberg, yeah. you Bloomberg, the terminal versus Bloomberg Media. The terminal's the vast majority of the business, right? Not Bloomberg Media. Mm-hmm. You look at you know, Dow Jones, their institutional business is, is larger than even you know, Wall Street Journal, which is, yeah, a, is that's in true. and of itself a decent business. And you can keep going on and on. So yeah, I used to work for, for Dow Jones on their compliance product. So yeah, I, I, did see, okay. I did see a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So what about the Middle East? Can you share numbers in terms of like how many people are engaged from that from from the region? Yeah, so I look based on the fact that we were chatting, yeah. you know, today and in terms of absolute number of users, like it's not super significant, you know, in aggregate it's right around 1% of our, our user base. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the UAE being number 1, Saudi Arabia number 2, Iran. I'm surprised actually Israel's Less traffic for us in 2020 than UAE. But yeah, we're an English language site yeah. and we haven't done a tremendous, we don't really have a Middle East beat. And so, you know, to date, yeah, in aggregate, it's it's not a massive part of our traffic. Gotcha. Yeah, and it's definitely an interesting market. I do feel that a lot of them are, or at least the engaged users from YC are on Telegram groups. Arabic language telegram groups talking about prices <laughs> that I feel is sort of the only <laughs> market that people are currently interested in. 
But those who do know the technology, language doesn't seem to be a barrier because the decision makers in enterprise or government, most of them know how to speak English. So they would be able to get that information. It's just that the size is not as big as other markets, except for a few select countries like Saudi and Iran. So yeah, but it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. So one final question before we wrap up, what is the one thing that made you the person you are today? Ooh, that's a very interesting question. I would say, so as an adult, the thing that helped me sort of transition from being a child or young adult Mm -hmm. who grew up in Connecticut to being an adult was, I would say, my formative college years. So I I made a decision to go to school 3,000 miles away in California and immediately was thrust into a group of people from all over the world, mm. middle of Silicon Valley, the secret service lived in my freshman dorm. You know, Chelsea Clinton was an acquaintance. And so it just was like a wake up call of, wow, like you have you know access to all of these amazing people and, and resources. It was so, so, so different than growing up in the seasons of the Northeast, you know, living yeah. in almost this perpetual sunny place. Wake up call, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so I was fortunate to be around just incredible people right in the middle of Silicon Valley as, you know, the first sort of bubble, tech bubble was being created. And I would say the formative thing was when the, when the tech bubble burst. So it was kind of this this rise up and then down to the point where by the time I graduated in 2001, the bubble was bursting. There were no jobs in tech. And I was thrust out to get a job into the first, into the great post-bubble recession. I've now experienced, you know, I'm in my third one, right? There was that one. There was one a decade later and then two decades later, meaning today. Mm. So I think it was experiencing that, you know, boom and bust and exposure to new things just got me so excited about what was out there, but just Mm. kind of also how ferocious these markets are and how rapidly they can change. So I I thought I'd, you know, go right into tech right after school, but there were just no jobs. It probably took me almost a decade to get back into it. Yeah. And joined my first startup in 2007 and have been doing that you know, ever since. Yeah. And it's been really great for me. It's shaped my entire career. It's shaped the people that I met in college and, and the experiences and exposure to them and what they've done in tech has basically informed you know, my entire career. It's literally informed every aspect of my life. I'm a, yeah. you know, an online person by nature because I had internet access at the fastest speeds in the world from 1997 on. Yeah. Yeah, met, my, met my wife on Match.com. And yeah, so that's definitely cool. you know, the biggest impact for me was that change and being in that place at that time. That is very interesting because so, so I'm 26 and five years ago I graduated from university in London. And then I was, luckily, I was awarded a scholarship to go to China for two years to learn Mandarin, right? And I was like, yeah, why not? This will be fun. And this was in 2015, actually. And in the second year, that's when I joined the crypto industry. And so 2016, and so very similar in the sense where I, you know, it was very stable back then, 2016. And I just saw the hype going up crazily. And I remember 2016, nobody cared about blockchain, particularly in Shanghai and the university I was at. We were only a couple of students actually going on about this. And then I moved to Dubai after that for a different opportunity. And then again, still seeing that wave and riding it and then seeing the crash. It's been like a, how can I call like a very, I would say it's a debt-free MBA, (laughs) really, because all the lessons that you could learn from a bull and then a bear, Mm -hmm. which is super interesting. But I kind of get where you come from because I've sort of just experienced that (laughs) recently. Oh, I'm sure lots of people in this space have experienced that. But I get what you mean by experiencing it firsthand at the start of your career, because it 
it shapes up a lot of things so that you could do a few mistakes hopefully later down the line hopefully right yeah yeah, yeah. I, no i've been i've been fortunate i've made mine <laughs> yeah awesome cool so thank you so much for coming onto the show and if anybody wants to get in contact with you how could they do that yeah so the best way is is twitter i am at m d u d a s and uh, i have an open inbox so just direct message me if you want to chat yeah, so Mike is not lying about that. I randomly messaged him on LinkedIn. He's like, yeah, let's, sounds like fun. Let's do it. So he, he will reply. <laughs> cool stuff, Mike. Thanks a lot. And yeah, thanks for coming to the show. Thank you, Ahmed. Appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Bye.